0: Some good news at last for the pig sector this week.
1: There are skilled people who are ready to come to this country, so we're pretty optimistic that they could be in
0: place in a couple of weeks' time. Maybe we will have pigs in blankets at Christmas after all. Merrill Ward joins us shortly. We'll talk antibiotics, the markets and the weather for the week to come, plus hear the story of one young couple who got into farming in an unconventional way. Someone
2: approached me about some cows actually and wanted to sell me a herd of cows. I said, oh, That's great, but I haven't got any land and
0: they still don't know they come with land and We'll talk to heritage graziers in part two. Unfortunately, Sean Sparling can't be with us this week. Very sadly, his father passed away a few days ago. I'm sure you'll join me in sending prayers and our sincere condolences to Sean and his family. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. In the news this week, fertiliser manufacturer CF Fertilisers has confirmed it is to continue producing ammonium nitrate and its crucial carbon dioxide byproduct at its Billingham complex until at least the end of the year. The company's other main facility at Ince, however, remains out of production for the foreseeable future. The results of a survey conducted by the Royal Agricultural Benevolent Institution, Rabi, have been described by its president, the Duke of Gloucester, as a wake-up call to all who want to help build a better future for the the farming community. The survey revealed that more than a third of respondents are probably or possibly depressed, over half experience physical pain, a quarter have mobility problems and a fifth have problems carrying out their work because of health issues. Rabi is to launch three new pilot support schemes in response to the survey, a mental health first aid training course, better access to in-person mental health support and further trials of the Community Pillars scheme, which creates small local forums where farmers can talk in confidence. It's been another bad week for the pig sector, with many reports of on-farm culls of healthy, viable animals due to shortages of butchers in abattoirs and processing plants. But the week ended with some good news at last, as the government announced 800 temporary visas to allow foreign abattoir workers into the UK, plus an important private storage aid scheme. The AHDB has also announced a one-month suspension of its levy for November. Lincolnshire pig farmer Merrill Ward joins us again. Good morning, Merrill. It's looking a little more positive than when we spoke a couple of weeks ago. Will these announcements solve the problem in time for Christmas, do you think?
1: Our protesters have been actively trying to recruit overseas and there are skilled people who are ready to come to this country. So we're pretty optimistic that they could be in place in a couple of weeks' time, which would be fantastic because we're faced with Christmas coming up in 10 weeks' time. So we really have to... Start making this
0: happen now. Looking at what's happened with HGV drivers, they said 5,000 visas were going to be granted, but only a handful applied. How confident are we that all these butchers will come?
1: I spoke to the processor that I supplied and that was obviously one question that I put to them and they are reasonably confident. They haven't been sitting on their hands. They have been actively trying to recruit from countries outside the EU but have come up against the barrier that although skilled butchers have been on the shortage occupation list, which means that they have been eligible for visas before now, the requirements of those visas have been so onerous that those individuals haven't been able to come into the country. So this different type of visa, the seasonal visa, makes a huge difference. So we'll have to see what happens, but I think we're optimistic.
0: Does it actually solve the problem? George Eustace has said this is a temporary measure. How do we deal with this in the long term?
1: Well, I think the industry has always said that in the medium to long term, you know, six months to a year, there's a process that we need to go through to recruit local labour there are training programmes. The, the issue that we've all had is that just the sheer number of vacancies that there are across the country at the moment. So it's the competition for labour, there aren't the bodies to train, and it takes time to train people with those skills. So unfortunately, during the pandemic, the, the labour market and the training programmes have been completely disrupted. So it's very unusual circumstances, you know, the the number of people who've uh, who used to work in abattoirs who've gone home for extended periods and then either not been able to get back in the country or decided to, to remain at home for extended periods. You know, it's very unusual. You, you have to have some sympathy with those people because like all of the key workers in this country, they've all worked incredibly hard with no let-up and not seen their families for a very long time. So it's, it's not surprising there's been, a, been an exodus.
0: Does the AHDB announcement of the suspension of the levy in November make any real difference, or is it just really a drop in the ocean?
1: Uh, I think that's a that's a fig leaf. It doesn't make any difference whatsoever, to be honest, Steve. I'm I'm not sure why they even bothered with that. Um, we pay a levy, which is 80p a pig, and that 80p a pig is usefully used in marketing, research, export development. HGB have the reserves they can afford to give it a month back, but I really don't think for the financial damage that has been done to pig farmers it's going to make much of a difference at, at all. And they've sort of missed the main point that you actually need to have the pigs moving off the farm to be able to take advantage of that.
0: And can you just explain this private storage aid scheme, please, Merrill?
1: Once the butchers are in place, there's a huge backlog of pigs to be cleared off farm and there's going to be a lot of pork meat hitting the market so the idea with aid to private storage is that some of this can go into storage the processors purchase the pigs but the government actually pays for the storage and then that meat can then come back out on the market at a time when the market's more in balance and i think that will be very helpful in in smoothing out this this market disruption
0: otherwise we end up with a flood of pork on the market and then prices go down
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Prices are, you know, unfortunately heading downwards anyway. That's a very significant move. Really welcome.
0: All right, Meryl, thank you very much again. Thank you. Cattle vets and farmers are being called upon to spearhead efforts to populate the new National Medicine Hub with farm antibiotic data. Why? Well, to explain good morning to Rachel Hayton from the British Cattle Veterinary Association.
3: Good morning
0: to you. What are you actually asking for in relation to Medicine Hub and why?
3: So what we're hoping is that we can create a national data set that reflects antibiotic use across the whole cattle and sheep sectors.
0: Okay, now let's just take a step back. I should have asked you this first. What's wrong with antibiotics? What's the problem and why are we looking to restrict or reduce their use?
3: So there's no there's no problem with, with antibiotics per se. What we would like to do is demonstrate that we use antibiotics responsibly and in a moderate way. We think that the, the UK farming sector is a very low user of antibiotics. We've got good evidence for that, particularly across the, the ruminant sectors, so the cattle and sheep. Um, but what we don't have is a single national data set that demonstrates that conclusively. We've got lots of smaller data sets. Um, Farmers all all record their antibiotic use practices, know what their farmers are using. Lots of other groups have got aggregate sets of data that demonstrate levels of use, but we don't have one large data set that spans the whole industry. So that's what we're trying to create with the Medicine Hub.
0: Okay, and then when you've got all this data what will you do with it?
3: We can allow farmers to compare their use with the national figures so they can see how they're doing and then that can help them to drive improvements, to start conversations with their vets about what they could be doing better. It also allows us to compare ourselves globally so we can compare ourselves with other countries. We think we're going to compare extremely well um, and that will help us when we're trying to protect farmers against inferior imports, for instance, setting up um, trade agreements, trying to demonstrate to the world that we've got a really high quality agriculture industry. The EU is introducing some new medicine regulations from next year, and one of the requirements in, in that regulation is that countries set up farm level national data sets, exactly what we're talking about here. Obviously, we're not a part of the EU anymore, uh, but if we want to trade, really with the eu then we do have to have equivalent standards so that would be a really good reason uh for putting this in place
0: okay now where can we find out more information about this rachel
3: there's a web address which is medicinehub.org.uk farmers can register on there vet practices can also register on there and there's just uh, a whole heap of information about what to do next and how it all works
0: All right, Rachel Hayton for the British Cattle Veterinary Association. Thanks for joining us this morning.
3: Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: A family background is the most common route into agriculture. Here's the story of one couple who started a career in farming without that background and without a farm. Katie and James Allen have grown their conservation grazing business, Heritage Graziers, balancing five children and a full-time IT career. James, to start, give us a quick bit of your background.
2: I grew up um, in south-east London. My parents hadn't been involved in agriculture at all. The the wider family has my second cousin thumbs up in the borders in Scotland. And as a child, I used to go and visit him. So I kind of had a a brief exposure every year. I'd kind of get a week, maybe two weeks, usually around lambing time. And I guess I got a little snippet um, every year of that. But then,
0: you know, never never considered it as a career. And then you got together with Katie and she got a small flock of sheep at the time, hadn't she? And you, you moved and you took the sheep with you. Yes. She was
2: living down in Devon. She had a small holding down there and had uh, a few acres and I I think it was thirteen sheep and she wanted to do something with the wool. You know, for her it was really important to actually this what is considered a by product, a waste product, she actually thought had value, wanted to do something with it. We got together and I was up in the Cotswold, she was down in Cornwall, that was never gonna work. So she moved up. She said at the time said, so One of the things, you know, I'll be really sad is to leave the sheep and I just said, Well, bring them with you, we'll sort something out and so we literally scabbled around and found a local farm and rented a few acres, and that got the sheep up here. And then we kind of went from there. The conservation grazing thing started to come into a possibility. Someone approached me about some cows actually and wanted to sell me a herd of cows. And I said oh, that's great, but I haven't got any land. And they said oh, no, they come with land and you get paid to graze. And that's how we got into it.
0: Just talk me through what you mean by conservation grazing. You you seem to be paid to graze your animals. How does it work?
2: Yeah, so conservation grazing, so you're focusing on the land and the wildlife and the habitat rather than the livestock. So some of the sites we graze are SI. There's a lot of calceric um, wildflower meadows in Cotswold. So these are very species-rich, you know, covered with all sorts of orchids and other various um, plants, like, you know, traditional wildflower meadows. There's not many of them left. They need grazing really to get on top of them and give the wildflowers a chance to survive. And because they're kind of marginal land and often have very poor access, they're not suitable for traditional farming. So, you know, couldn't even get a plough up there if you tried Um, you've got these beautiful meadows that that need livestock on them
0: and you graze your animals there through the winter months particularly what do you do with them in the summer?
2: about two years ago we were approached by an estate it's an arable estate Um, they wanted livestock on the um, farm So we actually graze there at the moment. So we do some grazing of wildflower meadows there. They're kind of generating. And then during the summer, we're on their permanent pasture. So we also do kind of the regenerative agriculture grazing style, um, tall grass grazing and things like that to try and help
0: improve soil health. Now, I'm not going to go into your personal finances or anything like that, but um, you get paid over the, the, the winter months to do this. You've got to cover the cost during the summer. Is it viable working like this?
2: Yeah, I mean, we've worked for different people, different ways over the year, um, and there are different agreements that we've had. Some years we have been, you know, we pay to graze the, the marginal land, the difficult land. Often those landowners are getting um, subsidies for the fact it's grazed. and um, We have uh, native animals as well, which on some of the older schemes um, produces an uplift in that money they pass some of that on to us and then we kind of balance that over the summer with summer grading in answer to your question livestock farming is not hugely profitable at the best of times it certainly helps it helps with the smaller scale so we're running just under 50 head of cattle and about 130 odd sheep so it certainly helps at that scale the difficulty is the more livestock you have the more movement of livestock you have to do the more sites you have to visit the the more
0: time it takes so it might um, be dif- rather difficult to uh, make this viable on a if you like normal commercial scale
2: yeah i mean what, what it was for us was a fantastic way of getting into farming so we, we don't own a farm farm tendencies are particularly difficult to get hold of shall we say so this was an opportunity for us to get access to grass to be able to start and we started with three cows and 13 sheep i think it was and have built from there and it's given us that first foot on the ladder where we got some income during the winter for grazing and that helped pay for the summer grazing and then we could build you know we both have kind of second jobs in there as well so it's kind of a way of building a start to a point where actually we become viable to have conversations with people from farm tenancies to be able to have this conversation with the estate say yes we can come and graze on 250 acres of pasture and into, you know, 100 of acres of arable during the winter and things like that as well.
0: How do you cope with balancing family life and the business? And you've got a, a full-time job yourself. Uh, it must be a bit of a challenge balancing all that, lot.
2: Yes simple answer it, it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah katie does the livestock during the week she has to balance that with uh, she's got a business loop for years where she's had the wool process and making garments with that so she's got to balance it with that plus children uh, we'll have a son jack who is just over two as you say i have a full-time day job i have one day a fortnight that i don't work and that's a stock day and then weekends are uh, very busy for example weekend just gone uh i spent all all of saturday out checking we've moved cows from one end we're grazing across two farms at the moment we're moving right across both farms uh which was i think that's six kilometer walk and which took us a couple of hours so on saturday i went and checked the route um and made sure any gates that were in there weren't locked and but where all the cows could bolt and escape and then i spent the rest of the afternoon moving two tonnes of handling equipment by hand to set a pen up. And then on Sunday, we were there from uh, half nine till six, moving the livestock across the estates, getting into handling equipment, doing some vaccination, doing some other medical stuff on them, and then moving them off to somewhere else, sorting out a bunch of fencing and done. And that was my weekend. You know, While other people are out barbecuing, I spent, you know... You must of, you know, love barbecues. it. Yes. Um, Otherwise you wouldn't I, I do I it, do. would
0: you? Let's face it.
2: I, I do love it. There's something as as anyone that works with livestock or farms will, will tell you that there's something in me that drives me to do it. As there's, there's a passion, there's a there's a love for it. Uh, I, I love what we do. I love what we're trying to do. Um, I love improving and looking after native habitats. Obviously, love the livestock. There are some really hard days, particularly in the winter, usually towards the end of the winter when it's cold, wet, muddy. Um, you're running out of food, the grass isn't growing, um, and you're juggling it with the day job, with the family, with everything else. It is hard work. You know, if it was a full-time job, that paid all the bills, then actually it takes some of the pressure off it. But, you know, we're often working until, you know, I think I finished probably 11 o'clock doing paperwork last night, and things like that. So, yeah, it, it takes an effort.
0: So, what's the long-term plan for the two of you? Because we're always, we graze for other people.
2: We are not in control of that land. And that can make things very difficult from fencing you know, some of the fencing we work with is poor shall we say and um, we have to use a lot of electric fencing to patch holes and things like that you know, livestock can get out because a local landowner notices a as an example the energizer the battery low battery lights flashing so he takes the battery off and goes to charge it himself Um the cut the livestock, notice the fence has got no battery on it, and walk out and walk <laughs> through the road.
0: Um, yeah, meantime, they're not that daft, are they? <laughs> they're not that daft.
2: <laughs> in the meantime, I've got a fully charged battery in the car that I'm dropping off the next day and didn't know the battery. You know. So things like that, um, You know, we've had times where we've gone in, we're just about to go into a field where we've stockpiled grass and we're looking to do, say, long grass grazing and uh, the landowner has run a flock of sheep through it or cut it or something or other. And so long-term... We'd like to be able to do a better job of what we're doing, which means actually having full control over what we're doing. So, you know, farm tenancy would be great if we were to have a tenancy somewhere that is really looking to actually improve the wildlife on the farm, improve the soil health, um, and, and really make something viable. That's, that's what, that would be great for us, something like that. You know, as, as a first-generation farmer coming in, yeah, farming is, is an amazing career. It's an amazing lifestyle. Um, uh, I think it's one of those things that, not because the industry wants it to be, but just because of the nature of it, it feels like a bit of a closed door. It isn't. There are ways into it. There are a number of places, a number of landowners, wildlife trusts, organizations like that, that are needing people to graze these conservation sites. If you want to get into farming, if you want to keep livestock, there is a way you know it's not an easy I'm not saying it's easy but you know farming isn't easy generally even if it's just a few sheep you know sheep are easier to manage than cattle cattle often do a, a better job on some of these conservation sites but you know, you know either would work if you want a few sheep then ask around if you want it to happen it can happen and on the flip side for landowners you know SSSIs, these wildlife meadows these, these other conservation sites incredibly valuable we're losing them over time you know, support someone who wants to come in. You're getting subsidies for these things. Bounce some of that on to actually encourage and pay a grazier or a, a new entrant or whatever. Or, you know, work with them about how, you know, if they want to sell meat, just try and support them right way. Work together to get these sites grazed because, frankly, we, we desperately need them. Um, and it kind of, if you can support new entrants coming in as well, then it's a win-win situation.
0: Yeah, and you you got into the industry and you have plans for the future, which is great to see. Your story's on your website, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it be on Herkish raises. I've, over the years, done a few um, podcasts, rock and roll farming, uh, meat farmers. Um, so we've been on those as well, which go into a bit more in depth of our backstory and things like that, if anyone's interested.
0: So, as you say, if anybody's interested in following the same route or like to know more about it, they can look at Heritage Graziers' website. Uh, James, and on behalf of Katie as well, obviously, thank you so much for joining us on the Farming Programme this morning. Fascinating story, and uh, all the best for the future. Yep, thanks very much and good to speak to you. To the markets we go now with his weekly review. Here's
4: Openfields Kit Dickinson. Morning, Kit. Well, good morning, Steve. Another USDA report confirmed what the market already knew by lowering global stocks by a further 6 million metric tonnes, with major exporter supplies and availability continuing to contract, with Canadian and US lowered by a further 3.5 million metric tonnes combined. EU exports were raised by 500,000 to 35.5 million, and whilst current exports are 40% ahead of last season and still significantly understated, it is difficult to see this being sustained with reduced French wheat quality. There is also talk of a change to the Russian export tax, which, if introduced, would apply the tax based on a free on board price to shipments, which would increase the tax by a further $20 a tonne and slow exports as a consequence. With Australian logistics almost at capacity, demand should switch more towards the US as we go forward. The Argentine GM wheat decision, which could exclude it from major export destinations if the government signs it off, was deferred and will be addressed sooner rather than later. One of the surprises in the USDA report was the small increase in maize yield when the market was expecting a small decline, which pressured prices. They did, however, increase Chinese 2020-2021 maize imports by 2 million metric tons to 28 million and left 2021-2022 at 26 million when some expected a drop to 20 million metric tons. French and Ukrainian farmers are faced with increased drying costs and reportedly leaving their crops in the field to dry naturally and harvesting more lucrative sunflower seed crops instead. With South American crops faced with another La Nina and much talk of a switch away from growing maize to cheaper alternative crops, the maize situation is not overly bearish, particularly if China turns up with their shopping basket. Mexico has also increased their maize demand by 2 to 2.5 million metric tonnes. Barley this week, almost a copy and paste from last week, with markets seeing a steady gain in values, with free on-board markets continuing to lead the way. Once again, European buyers remain at the front of the queue. One change is the crop size discussion with DEFRA releasing their estimates on Thursday, pointing to an overall crop of 7 million tonnes. The portion of malting barley does continue to grow, with upgrades coming forward steadily. As execution of contracts continues, there are some quality problems coming forward. This is mostly with germination at this stage. Oilseed rope futures markets have been another roller coaster, touching contract highs and then losing a chunk of those gains in two days. Climbing crude oil and veg oil markets have supported both futures and cash market values this week, trading ahead of the USDA crop report, which was released late on Tuesday night. The report offered a couple of surprises, with higher than anticipated yield increase for the US soybean crops, along with higher US world carryout numbers. The latter predicted on the lower demand from China on the rumours of subdued crushed demand on the back of power issues as they have been reported to drop in the pig herd numbers. This news sent the market into retreat, generating a trade range of circa £30 per tonne over the week. Meanwhile, biodiesel markets remain supported and maintain crushed margins in the short term. Back home, DEFRA announced their crop estimates for this year, pitching the UK all rape crop at circa 977,000 tonnes, refocusing attention on the need for imports to balance the UK books. Australian canola output is currently hitting a record of over 5 million tonnes as growers switch away from their barley following the trade spat with China. This could offer some relief for the EU, however elevated freight rates could improve and keep these values underpinned. So looking at prices this week, feed wheat for October is 190 to 192, November 200 to 203, February 206 to 208 and May 209 to 211. Milling wheat premiums are currently 33 to 35 pounds. Feed barley for October is 185 to 187, November 187 to 189, February 190 to 192. And May, 193 to 195. Malting barley premiums for a 185 nitrogen are circa 35 to £40. Oilseed rape, October, 520 to 525. Moving higher into November at 535 to 540. February, 540 to 542. And May, 542 to 545. Many thanks, Kit. The
0: Farming Programme five-day forecast. It's looking cooler and wet this week with rain most days. Starting today with a light southerly breeze, cloudy with showers and feeling colder with a high of 12. Monday should be a couple of degrees warmer with a brisker southerly wind in the upper teens MPH, mostly dry but with some light rain possible, highs of 14 degrees. The middle of the week sees the most rain, with the wind veering to the southwest, staying in the upper teens MPH, but gusting into the 40s. Highs around 16 Celsius Tuesday, 14 on Wednesday, and only just scraping into double figures by the end of the week, which will be drier and brighter with light variable winds. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we'll see how the Sugar Beet campaign's going one month in, and look forward to the Lincoln Cathedral Harvest Festival. I'm Steve Orchard. Until then, have a good week.